Who exactly is Jesus Christ? The person of Jesus is, without parallel, the most influential person throughout all history. Even secular historians agree. One history professor from Yale once said in an article for Time magazine, regardless what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? And yet he may also be one of the most controversial figures throughout all history. Religious experts, both from the time of Jesus and today, argue over what Jesus actually meant when he said things like, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Muslims acknowledge Jesus as a prophet, but not God. Jehovah Witnesses see him as a God, but not the God. To understand the most influential person throughout all history requires more than a simple search on the internet. We have to go back to a reliable source. And what's the best source we can find to learn who Jesus is? I propose to you this morning that it's the documents written by his friends and his followers, the people closest to him, the Gospels themselves, the people who spent time around Jesus learning from him, not scholars or influencers born 2,000 years after he walked on earth. So we come to our text today with open hearts and open minds to learn what God has preserved for us by his spirit through his word. Today we're beginning a new series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, which we'll be working through. Uh, we're we're going to be doing what, what is called expositional preaching. And it's basically just reading the text and as we go along, exposing the meaning within the text so we can understand it better. And the Gospel of Mark was written for this very purpose, to be read and preached in Christian churches and to teach people about who Jesus is. Since this is the start of a new uh, series, I'm going to take a little bit more time to introduce the book and to introduce the author, Mark than I normally would in sermons, but I think it's going to help us uh, prepare for going through the book and studying it as a whole. The Gospel of Mark is titled after its author, who is sometimes called John Mark. He was a traveling companion of Peter's and likely used much of Peter's preaching and teaching to write this Gospel. Uh, we know this because the order of some of the quotes in Mark appear to be aligned with Peter's sermons and Acts. Uh, it was also Mark's house that Peter fled to after uh, escaping from prison. Peter also calls him his son in 1 Peter 5, verse 13. We know that he was also a traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas, and though they split ways at once over a disagreement, Paul calls him useful in the ministry in 2 Timothy 4:11. Tradition thinks there's a brief reference to Mark uh, in the book itself, though he's not identified by name. In chapter 14, verse 51, as Jesus is being arrested, it says, quote, A young man followed him, 
with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. They think that was some sort of signature for the author to uh, put himself in the story uh, in, in a humble way without drawing too much attention to him, much like the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John. Mark is the shortest gospel between the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which each tell the story and the life of Jesus. It can be read out loud in about an hour and 20 minutes, or silently in about an hour. Uh, it's also known as very straightforward and to the point. Between the three synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice Matthew and Luke just tend to elaborate a lot more uh, than Mark does. If you were to put them side by side, Mark gets straight to the point and says things very plainly with little or no commentary. He just takes us right along with the story. Matthew and Luke do much more narration. It's assumed to be the earliest gospel, and perhaps the one that Matthew and Luke drew from as a source for some of their information, for their accounts. That would put a date of the authorship of this book right around 50 A.D., roughly 20 years after Jesus' death. The book of Mark is a drama, and Mark is a storyteller. He writes in vivid detail, in a way that draws the reader into the story. Here's just an example from chapter 14. It's right when Jesus is betrayed. Actually, right before he's betrayed, he's telling Peter in verse 30. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Fast forward to verse 66. After Jesus had been taken... And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is a powerful way to tell stories. Less than 10% of the population during the first century uh, would have been literate. Uh, and even then, not everyone would be able to write and uh, read. They were two separate skills. And therefore, Mark was written in order to be memorized, shared with others, read aloud in, in uh, Christian churches, because people wouldn't be able to read the books for themselves. Much of the New Testament was communicated this way. This gospel, then, is a perfect place for us to start a new series in the Bible. It's all about the character and the person of Jesus. The title may be the Gospel of Mark, but he tells us in the opening verse 
the real main character, Jesus Christ, written urgently to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who have not heard. It's an epic demonstration, a presentation of the Messiah foretold by the prophets, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and witnessed by his disciples. This is the story of the man who changed history. This is a story about who Jesus is. And while there's plenty about Jesus' teaching in the book, you may be surprised to find that he doesn't speak often of morality. Instead, he speaks much about himself and the kingdom of God. You'll notice throughout the book that Mark uses the word immediately a lot, showing the development and tension of the story. This is a uniquely Markan feature. In the rest of the New Testament, that word euthus for immediately only occurs about 12 times. But in the Gospel of Mark alone, it appears 42 times. The narrative just draws you in, and the pace does not slow down until the end of the book. There's also many titles given to the name uh, or the person of Jesus throughout the book, but I'd like to draw your attention to just one, and that's the title that Jesus refers to himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Uh, It's used about 14 times, much more than other titles, and I think you'll find that what Jesus draws from are a few key passages in the Old Testament. We won't turn to them, but I'll just mention them so you have them if you want to write them down. Jesus sees himself as David's Lord, referring back to Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus sees himself, and Mark seems to elaborate that Jesus is the suffering servant, taken from Isaiah 53. And then finally, the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Each critical text's from the Old Testament. The structure of the book could be organized around three different locations. I think that's the easiest way to read it. Uh, Basically, what you have for the first eight chapters, from chapter 1, verse 1 to 8, verse 21, you have Galilee. It's the central location. From chapter 8, verse 22, to chapter 10, verse 52, you have them on the way to Jerusalem, moving towards Jerusalem. And then from chapter 11, verse 1, to 16, verse 8, that's the rest of the book, you have the things that took place in Jerusalem. With that in mind, let's read our text for this morning, Mark 1, starting in verse 1, which you can find on page 836 in the Pew Bibles provided. The Word of God says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The main idea of this text, and I think the main idea of the book as a whole, is that Jesus Christ has finally come, and that this is good news. I'll say that again. The main idea is that Jesus Christ has finally come, and this is good news. I pray you see this good news with fresh eyes this morning, not as an antiquated story, but as a history-changing moment that carries the same amount of urgency today as it did then. The text itself can be divided into three paragraphs. I think it's marked that way in your Bibles. What you have in the first three verses is basically a prologue. It's like an introduction to the introduction. And then verses 4 through 8 is like an introduction to Jesus as John announces his coming. And then verses 9 through 11 is the baptism of Jesus. And so I have three points for us today to think about this text that correlate with those three uh, verse breakdowns, those three sections. And we're going to be covering each, each point. The first point is the gospel of Jesus. And that's verses 1 through 3. The second is the baptism of John, verses 4 through 8. And third is the arrival of our Lord in verses 9 through 11. Let's begin with point one, the gospel of Jesus, as it opens the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that word gospel is thrown around a lot today, so I think it's important we understand exactly what Mark is saying. Uh, we don't typically use the word gospel today to refer, uh, we do use it today to refer to the message of salvation, as summarized by John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. This is a normal way to use that word gospel, and it's a good and accurate way. But it may not be exactly what Mark was intending here. The word gospel simply means good news or good tidings. It's the beginning of the good news of Jesus. That is the very person of Jesus. Mark is referring to the story and the life as a whole. What you'll see as we make our way through the book is that who Jesus is and what he came to do is good news. For Mark, as well as for Peter, the good news was that the long-awaited Messiah had come. And if you think about, if you think about Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Peter is preaching boldly the divinity of Christ and the divine appointment of him as king. What was the last piece of good news that you heard? I'll tell you about a piece of good news that I heard recently. I don't know if you heard about any of the drama last week, but uh, my previous pastor, Greg Gilbert, came and preached here. And the night before he came, he texted me right around 6.45 p.m. and said, my flight is about three hours delayed. I don't think I'm going to make my layover in Chicago. There's a good chance I won't be coming. And... uh just butterflies started filling up in my stomach. 
And uh, I collaborated what, what would be the best thing to do. I messaged the elders, wondering if we should ask another guest preacher. Around 7 p.m., I'm wondering if I need to start writing my own sermon to preach the day of my installation, which would be okay. Uh, it would just be funny to explain. And then around 8.27 p.m., I received a text, and it said, I'm on the plane, and I was relieved. <laughs> uh, that was good news for me, and I rejoiced in my heart. I immediately went out and told Karis, and I to the elders, told them the good news. He got on the plane. That's what we do with good news, isn't it? We rejoice when we hear it, and we share it with other people. So friends, have you rejoiced in your heart about the good news of Jesus lately? Have you told others who have not heard about the greatest story they could hear? That though we are sinners, Christ died for us. And he rose and calls people to himself. In that last conversation you had with a coworker and a non-Christian, do you think they walked away thinking that you believed Jesus was good news? Perhaps you get nervous and sharing your faith and concerned about what others will say. If that's the case, I would encourage you to just talk to another member about that. Uh, ask them how they think through those things and ask them to pray for you as you share your faith with others. If you're a visitor here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there's no better place for you to be. There's nowhere else we would want you to be on a Sunday morning. We want you to know that God created the world and everything in it, that he made it perfect. And because he made it, he rules over it. Adam broke those rules, creating a rift between God and mankind. And ever since that day Adam sinned, man was separated from God. The world is no longer perfect. We now have a sinful nature, which is why we all sin, which is why there's hurt in the world. We in our sin are deserving of God's punishment because he is a perfect judge. This is why we desperately need good news. And not everybody knows that they need it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, sent his son to die for us. Jesus, the son of God, took on flesh to bear our burdens and sorrows, living as a man, yet without sin. He died on the cross willingly, to absorb the wrath of God that we deserved as a substitute on our behalf. It's because of this love that we can come to him and plead for forgiveness. That's all possible because of Jesus. The good news is that we are not left to figure things out on our own or to work it out on our own, for we would always fall short. And we know that we can believe this because Jesus Christ did not stay dead. He rose from the grave and offers his body as a sacrifice on our behalf. He's in heaven now, seated at the right hand of God the Father, with open arms ready to welcome all who come to him. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the good news that Mark will elaborate in his gospel. And this opening verse, verse 1 of the book, is very much a summary of the whole thing. Mark wants his readers and listeners to know the good news of Jesus. Just a quick word about good news. It just assumes that the news has content of some kind. It is meant to be 
shared and understood. It's meant to be received. It's meant to communicate meaning. It's meant to be responded to. That's the first thing Mark tells us about Jesus. The other thing he says is he's not just another prophet or an important religious leader, but is in fact the very Son of God. Not only is this plainly stated by Mark, but Jesus will be recognized by people and even demons throughout the book as being the Holy One of God in verse 24 of chapter 1 and and Son of the Most High God in chapter 5, verse 7. He's the one Israel was told about by the prophets of old, the one who would finally come and bring peace and salvation to his people, the one who would be filled with the Spirit of God. He is the man of God's own choosing that is God himself. Where do I get that from? Look with me at verses 2 through 3. It says, as it, was, as it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, this is a quotation. It's actually a combination of both Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3.1. Uh, it's written during a time of great judgment on Israel because they abandoned God for idols. And so God's presence left their midst. He handed them over to captivity, and the people would be wondering if God would ever come back and save them. His answer, through the prophets, was to wait for the Lord to come. But what I want you to see first is what the messenger's announcement is. Prepare the way of the Lord. That is, prepare the way for Yahweh. Make his paths straight. It's not as clear in our English Bibles, but if you go back and look at Isaiah 40, you'll see what's called lower capitals. It's like small capital letters, all Lord, and that communicates the name that God revealed himself, Yahweh. And Mark uh, uses this to then show that Jesus is the very person that Isaiah is talking about. Let's move on to point two, the baptism of John in verses four through eight. This prophecy was taken from Isaiah and Malachi, but uh, it wasn't immediately pointing to Jesus. It was actually directly pointed to John, the messenger, just like a prologue. Prophets are before the introduction to Jesus. These prophecies are actually used by Mark to authenticate the identity of Jesus. John the Baptist was his forerunner. Jesus didn't just show up one day and say, here I am. Believe in me. But we get to learn about our fellow baptizer, John. What did God's people think before Jesus came? Were they expecting him? Were they expecting anyone or anything? What's the relationship between God and his covenant people? Verse 5 says that they were people coming from all over Judea and Jerusalem to be baptized by him. This doesn't sound like a small gathering. John sounds like a persuasive person who's gathering a large group of people. These are the people who had repentant hearts that did not want to follow idols, but believed they needed to return to the Lord. Notice John's teaching. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered where Baptists came from or why we have Baptist in the name of our church here at FBC. 
there is a common misconception that John the Baptist uh, is where we get it from. Uh, and really, John the Baptist is a, is a title, but the word used that's often translated that way could, could better be translated as John the Baptizer, the one baptizing. That's the idea conveyed here. And I think it's a good time if we don't talk about it when we're talking about John the Baptist to briefly speak about what baptism is. Uh, specifically, baptism is for believers in Christ, not infants like our friends at the Roman Catholic Church or our brothers and sisters at Presbyterian churches. Jesus commands us to baptize disciples we make, uh, which is always preceded by faith in the New Testament and assumes a voluntary decision to follow Christ. Uh, that's what being a disciple is. I'd also like to point out that the Jordan River, as a place to be baptized, uh, there's probably not a sprinkling happening there, uh, but a dunking, a full submerge. That more accurately communicates what's happening when someone's baptized. I'll put a pin in that discussion for now. Maybe I'll come back to it. So if Mark is identifying John as a prophet, what is John's message and teaching? Look at verse 4. He tells us he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Basically, what he was doing was calling people to repent and to trust in the promises of God. He was doing what God, through Isaiah and the prophets, did. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. That is what John's doing. He's preparing the way by calling people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John wasn't out in the middle of nowhere shouting uh, into the air like a madman, though you might think he was mad based on the clothing he wore. This is not what normal people wore, in case you didn't know. The description of his Clothing is actually consistent with prophets in the Old Testament. His clothing matches Elijah's attire according to a verse Second Kings, chapter one, verse eight. Now I'm not an expert in ancient apparel, but I'm pretty sure camel hair garments and leather belts weren't exactly the hottest fashion of the day. Nor was his diet locust and honey, the whole thirty of the day. If anything, John is living very differently from the culture around him because he has given his life to being a mouthpiece of God. He's not just a first century Amish man or a hermit that's cut off from society. No, his clothing is a sign of incredible piety. He is a man who trusts God to provide food for him, who lives on the very promises of God and trusts God to provide for him in the wilderness like Israel failed to do. We'll come back to that later. Where do you fit in as a Christian in an idolatrous world? Do you just blend in? Christians are to live peaceably, yes, but we're also called to be distinct in the world, to be salt of the earth. Now, the point of this passage, don't get me wrong, is not that you need to dress a certain way or eat a specific diet, I especially don't recommend eating insects. But we can deduct that obedience to God is more important than the customs of our culture. And at times, that may make us 
look strange to the world. We might look as strange, if not stranger, as someone clothed in camel hair who eats insects. But John was God's prophet, calling all of Israel to return to God. The people who had been living with their gods for hundreds of years, and God patiently waited for this exact moment in history to return to his people. So we read from people, we read that people from all over Judea and Jerusalem were coming and responding to this teaching by John in faith. Now, getting baptized uh, as a sign of faith for the one who would come and wash away their sins. He says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Two quick things to mention about that verse, verse 8. First, baptism of the Holy Spirit simply refers to conversion. When someone puts their faith in Christ, Scripture says you're changed on the inside and God replaces your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. The Spirit dwells within you. That makes Jesus then, according to Mark 1, a dispenser of the Holy Spirit. It's a job duty that is reserved for only God alone. Another action that can uh, only be done by Yahweh. Later in the book, in chapter 3, the scribes accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul, and he teaches about the unforgivable sin. He says they blaspheme against the Holy Spirit because they say about Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. It's as this dispenser of the Holy Spirit that Jesus baptizes people in regeneration. The second thing about that verse, verse 8, is that John didn't mean that his baptism was going to actually forgive them of their sins. No, friend, the blood of Jesus, as we sang, is the only thing that can cleanse us from our sins. Just like the sacrifices of old, they were an act of obedience that looked forward to the promise of God to forgive sins. Just as our baptism now after Christ looks backward to Christ, so John's baptism looked forward to Christ in faith. Baptism does about as much to forgive someone as this wedding ring does to make me married. The ring itself has no power, nor am I single if I remove it. There's nothing really special about the ring. But it's a symbol that points to the reality of the covenant I have with my wife. It's a reminder to me of the promises that we vowed to one another on that day before friends and family. I can look at it and be reminded of those covenants and those vows. It shows that I'm committed to someone for other people around to see. And the circular nature of it symbolizes the lifelong commitment to marriage. So too, baptism is a sign a symbol to the watching world of your commitment to Jesus. And it provides a visible demonstration of being washed clean, dying to your old life and rising to new creation. It's a reminder for us of our blood-bought lives. John's message and his clothing points to his master. John, like the prophets before him, did not bring people to himself and proclaim himself to be their savior, But he pointed them to Jesus, the one he says is greater than he. Jesus would come after, the one who is mightier, whose sandal he wasn't even worthy to untie. It's common today when you go into someone's house to remove your shoes, 
keep things clean. It's a good courtesy, but it would be unusual if you went to a guest's house and they asked you to remove your shoes and then they remove them for you. At least I think that would be strange. Let me know if you practice this. But that would have been more common in Jesus' day. We know that servants washed feet of those and people's feet would get uh, incredibly dirty as everyone wore sandals, both the rich and the poor, and uh, pavement hadn't quite been invented yet. Uh, and we know that Jesus set this countercultural example by him as the master serving his disciples and washing their feet. But John here considers himself to be so beneath the Lord Jesus, so unworthy, that even the dirtiest, lowest part of him, he's not worthy to loose. Let's move on to point three, the arrival of our Lord. How great and how glorious is the one who would come after John? Enter Jesus. Look with me at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The stage has been set. The prophets long ago ranging three to five hundred years back and arguably earlier than that, spoke of the Davidic king who would come. In Mark's gospel, he appears as a man fully grown and ready to begin his work on earth. Who is this mighty person that John speaks of? Who is it that is so worthy that John, a great man of God himself, is not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals? Jesus, just so you know, and Elsewhere in the New Testament said that there was no man on earth more righteous than John. It's Jesus of, of Nazareth, of Galilee, a small and uneventful place for the, for the Lord's mighty servant. Jesus made his way into the wilderness where John was ministering to initiate his own ministry. And after receiving the baptism of John, Mark doesn't tell us this, but we know from Matthew's account of this event that John wanted to be baptized by Jesus. But Jesus insisted on being baptized to, quote, fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus' baptism here isn't just the inauguration of his ministry or the anointing from God as a king, but it was an act of submission to God. It was an act of obedience to what God was calling his people to do during that time to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, looking forward to the coming Son of Man. Now, wait a minute. I thought Jesus didn't have any sins. Why then did he need to be baptized by John? If Jesus committed no sin, he would not need forgiveness, right? That's exactly right. This actually confirms what I said earlier about water baptism being ineffectual for the actual forgiveness of sins. There's nothing special about the water. Washing the outside of our bodies doesn't cleanse us within, just like putting on a wedding ring doesn't make one married. So Jesus, being the perfect obedient son, is baptized by John, not for the forgiveness of sins, but because it was a, an appropriate demonstration of obedience and of righteousness at that time. 
So Jesus is baptized. And as he comes up from the water, something immediately happens. The heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the spirit uh, seems visibly to descend on him. But we don't really know what the spirit of God looks like or if it even has a metabolic substance. But we know that the spirit of God is described similarly throughout the Old Testament. Uh, as we read earlier in the service, God's spirit hovered over the waters before creation as he dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden and he met Moses on Mount Sinai, later filled the tabernacle and is described as a thick cloud that would remind the people to believe God forever. We also hear of the presence of God leaving the temple in Ezekiel as God's presence leaves them in judgment. It was the spirit resting on the servant that they have been waiting for ever since. That was a, a crucial sign that would indicate that he was, in fact, God's chosen servant, servant come to save his people. Along with the Spirit's dissension onto Jesus comes a voice. You are the Son. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And Jesus comes as the Savior, the Son of God, witnessed by the prophets of old, John the Baptist, and now the Father himself. This anointing of the Holy Spirit is like God saying, this is where I am. Follow him. And we'll see as we go through the book that Jesus sees his own actions as the very actions of God. Those who witness his teachings and miracles say the same thing. Even the ones who plot to put him to death. There's something else I want you to see this morning. And it's the location that all this takes place. Jesus begins his ministry in the wilderness and then moving to be tempted immediately after is of great significance as well. We'll cover that next week. But when Adam sinned, he and Eve were both thrown out of the garden into the wilderness. God rescued his people from Egypt and gave them his law in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, ever since the Garden of Eden, we have been a wilderness people. The wilderness is where the acts of, re of revelation and redemption begin. And this is the revelation of the Son of God and the forgiveness of his people that begins here in the first scene of Mark's gospel. Not only that, but Christ comes to restore what was lost in Adam. In the coming verses, we'll see Jesus wrapped in the weakness of human flesh, resist the temptation of the serpent. In the beginning, God created man in his own image. In Mark's beginning, Jesus appears not as an infant or with a long list of a genealogy record, but fully grown. And instead of beginning inside the garden and getting thrown out into the wilderness, Jesus meets us in the wilderness and brings the garden to us. There are creation tones in the Gospel of Mark as Jesus comes to call sinners to himself to bring his presence before us. So who is Jesus? What exactly did he come to do? Does the world still need to hear about someone like Jesus? Is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, still good news? 
Friends, Jesus is the most important person in all history, not just for Israel. He is the long-awaited Savior of the world, and the news of his salvation is every bit as important today as it was back then. True God from true God come to save their people from their sins. Jesus performed many miracles to demonstrate his power, yet his primary work was not to meet our physical need, to heal diseases, to cure the sick, but it was our spiritual needs. He laid down his life willingly for his people so that those who trust him as Lord of all are not simply washed with water on the outside, but are baptized by the Holy Spirit with new hearts. I look forward to continuing Mark's drama with you, to learn about our Savior in all the stark and shocking ways that Mark teaches us. And I hope through this study of Mark's gospel, you'll gain a greater clarity of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. I pray the good news of Jesus soaks into your heart like rich soil after it's watered, and that the good news would not become, a, would not become dry but would produce new life, evident for all to see around you. Christ comes as the new Adam, the better Adam, come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your servant, Mark, We praise you for the way that he recorded the precious life of Jesus. We praise you as the loving God who came to save us. Though we turn from you, we choose our sin daily. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. So, Lord, we praise you for the man Christ Jesus, the Son of God. We thank you for the way that you promised your people throughout the ages that he would come. We thank you for the way that he came to seek and to save the lost, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to be a ransom for us. We pray these things in the Son's precious and holy name. Amen.